Uh, you'll remember that last week we looked at the uh, famous story of David and Goliath. And what we're looking at this week is the immediate aftermath of that. Uh, this is slightly unusual in that I am going to be speaking on that passage twice. Once this evening and once next week in the morning, because the morning's a week behind the evening. I'm telling you that for two reasons. The first is by way of warning that if you're around uh, in the morning in a week's time, you'll get, as it were, second helpings of this uh, sermon. And the second is this. If when you're listening, you think that I haven't expressed something terribly well or that I could have said it clearer or something you didn't quite understand, do come and talk to me afterwards because who knows, I might agree with you, in which case I'll try and improve things for next Sunday morning. Okay? Uh, So, there we have it. Let's uh, let's look at the passage. Uh, Just let's set the scene. Remember that the Philistines have been comprehensively defeated. Their champion is dead, and the Israelites are more secure than they have been for a generation. And as the army marched back from the southwest of the country to the central hill country, the people rejoiced. Uh, Saul and David had become heroes. What have I done with the Bible? Uh, This is what the, uh, the women said. Sorry, this has got a really bad start. Right, here we go. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Everyone was happy. Well, actually, everyone bar one person. And that was King Saul. Now, he should have been happy. His enemies had been defeated. He was uh, more secure. He had his status enhanced to a greater degree than before. And he had a champion of his own now, in fact. He had David, who was to become his greatest and most successful general. But he wasn't happy. Why? The reason is because he was insecure. He was insecure and jealous of David. And as often happens when we're insecure and jealous, and that manifests itself, as we heard, in fear, we end up angry. And that's what happened to Saul. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain, that's the Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, uh, this refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, actually, his uh, fear about what the women were singing was ludicrous. Intellectually, he would have known that according to the normal structure of Hebrew songs and poetry, all they were saying is, Saul and David have had a superb victory. They weren't putting David above Saul, or for that matter, the other way round. But when we're jealous, when we're insecure, rational thought is often overtaken by other things, isn't it? And that was the case with Saul. Actually, for that reason, we do ourselves need to be careful. 
I suspect all of us from time to time experience some degree of insecurity. Uh, It's extraordinary within my own firm at work, uh, top of our profession, but people experience grave insecurity. And the danger is when we experience insecurity, we too experience jealousy. And what's more, we are quite adept at rationalizing how we react and thus not recognizing jealousy for what it is. We, we, We come up with something that justifies our feelings. Think about how you react to other people's success. Does it depend on how close that success is to what you want to succeed with? Think about success of peers at work. We need to be very careful. And where appropriate, we need to repent and seek God's help in overcoming that insecurity and the sin that can accompany it, as it did with Saul. But, of course, Saul did have some cause for insecurity. The the reason was he knew that God had taken the kingdom from him and and would manifest that uh, in due course. He knew it because the uh, prophet Samuel had told him that much. Go back to 1 Samuel 15 if you want to look at that more later. And he must have imagined rightly that David was going to be God's instrument in that. David was going to be the next king after uh, him. Now, if Saul had trusted God, if he'd been able to sing that song we were singing, You Give and Take Away, then he would have accepted God's will. He would have, in that situation, responded in faith. But then, had he trusted God, he wouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. As it was, Saul did not trust in God. And as a result, he couldn't accept the situation. Verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. He had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. You may wonder, what's going on when it says an evil spirit was sent by the Lord? The the precise mechanism God was using there is open to debate. But, but the overall act of God is clear. God was actually judging Saul and punishing Saul. Now, God does not effect evil. But the Bible shows us time and again that he will use the evil that's in the world to bring about his good purposes, including his judgments. 300 years later, he was to use the evil designs of the Assyrian emperor to bring judgment on his Israelite people. That was against a whole people. This was specifically against Saul here. In early Norse, Germanic, and Anglo-Saxon literature, we see warriors striving, fighting against their fate, and they're viewed as heroes. The Bible, and specifically 1 Samuel, tells us there's no such thing as fate. But what there is, is the will of God. And there is absolutely nothing heroic in striving against that. 
It's futile and pathetic and, of course, completely wrong. And what the Bible shows us is that if we do willfully strive against God, we will find ourselves in a downward spiral which leads ultimately to our destruction. And what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Samuel is that exemplified in the case of Saul. And in today's passage and chapters 19 and 20, which immediately follow it, we see the beginnings of that. First of all, as we've heard, Saul hurled a spear at David whilst in one of his uncontrollable rages, which we've read about previously. Well, that might have been excused. He somehow lost control of himself. But next, while in full control of himself, he decided to embark upon indirect planned murder. Verse 17, Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Doubtless that salved his conscience. Only he was wrong, of course. It was still attempted murder. And if you read on in chapters 19 and 20, of course it, of course it failed. Moreover, as those chapters indicate, God opposed Saul, on one occasion sending his spirit to disable Saul both mentally and physically, such that he could not kill David and David got away. We need to think about what was happening to Saul. You know, it is a terrible thing to fall foul of God. We need to think about the example of Saul and tremble. It's pretty scary when you think about it. Imagine you were Saul. We do need to to tremble at falling foul of God. However, when we do that, we do also need to remember that God is love. And that God always holds out the possibility of forgiveness and restoration if we turn back to him in repentance and faith. So whenever we're in a position where we feel God's displeasure, we shouldn't despair. We should take it seriously and act. And that acting means turning back to God and seeking to live in God's will, seeking to accept God's will. Trouble is, that may not be easy. It may not be something we want or like. Think about Saul. For him, turning back to God and accepting God's will would at this stage in his life have meant accepting that he was shortly going to cease to be king. And that was difficult. That was very difficult. Difficult but not impossible. And we see that from the example of Saul's son, Jonathan. You see, Jonathan was actually in the same position as Saul in many respects, well, in the relevant ones at least. Because, you see, David was as much a threat to Jonathan as he was to Saul. Uh, Slightly later on, this is in chapter 20, Saul said this, talking to Jonathan. As long as the son of Jesse, that's David, lives on this earth, 
Neither you nor your kingdom, Jonathan, will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Saul was right. And he drew the conclusion that he should kill David. Jonathan knew that his father was right, but he drew a radically different conclusion. If you go back to verse 3, you'll see it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, we don't know quite what that signified, but it was certainly elevating David relative to he himself. And sometime afterwards, Jonathan expressly recognized that he knew he would not be king, but David would be king. You see, for all his religiosity, and we will see it time and again in 1 Samuel, Saul did not have a living faith in God And he could not accept the will of God. In contrast, we see in various places in 1 Samuel that his son, Jonathan, did have a faith in God. And he thus accepted what God was proposing, even though it meant he would never be king. We we need to reflect on that. Now, I'm sure that it's unlikely that we will find ourselves in such an extreme situation as Saul and Jonathan found themselves in. But it's quite possible that we either have or will find ourselves in a situation in which what we know or think to be God's will is in conflict with what we want, with what we really desire, the way we want to live our lives. And if we find that, then this passage here lays before us two models of what we might then do. We can follow Saul. We can reject God's will. We can fight against it. But if we do that, we, like Saul, will begin that downward spiral. Or... We can follow the example of Jonathan. We can bow down and accept God and his will. And we can work with God in that. And if we do that, then we, like Jonathan, will be fulfilling God's will in our life and living a fulfilled life. By the way, Jonathan was to die young, as we'll see later. But that's not the point. The point is that he lived a fulfilled life serving God while he was uh, here on earth. There are only two choices. There's no third option, if you think about it. Logically, those are the only two possibilities. So far, we've looked then at Saul and Jonathan and particularly considered their relationship with David and in particular, more importantly, with God. What about David himself? Well, he uh, enjoyed the adulation of the people. We heard that twice in our reading. And doubtless in particular, the soldiers loved him. Furthermore, he was loved by Jonathan, the king's son, and by Michal, uh, his, his wife. But 
he had to endure the hostility of Saul, the murderous hostility of Saul. Now, you may think, yeah, but it was quite easy, wasn't it? After all, he knew that God had chosen him as king. God's prophet Samuel had told him that, so he didn't need to worry, did he? He could sit back and wait for things to happen. Mm, It's not as easy as that, is it? Imagine you were David. Um, Would you never wonder whether Samuel had got it right? And even if you didn't waver in that, you would probably note that God had never said things were going to be easy for you or that you weren't going to suffer. You might even note that God had said you'd be king, but he hadn't said when or for how long, and he hadn't said you wouldn't be a blind king or a crippled king or something else. I suspect, to be honest, if I'd been in King David's position, I would have been absent. Sorry, it wasn't king then. I'd have called him King David, didn't I? David position. Um, I'd have been terrified. And we know from uh, David's writings that he was scared on occasions. We're going to see how he reacted in the course of various sermons in coming weeks. But for the moment, let's just focus on two overarching points. First of all, David knew that God and God alone could protect him against Saul. And consequently, he turned to God in prayer and sought God's help. There are many examples of that, but the one I've included in the reading plan uh, is is a good example. It's Psalm 59. This psalm relates to the situation we read about in 1 Samuel 19, where Saul sent men to watch David's house and to kill him. And and, And David turns to God in prayer. I won't read it all, but I'll just read a couple of extracts. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I've done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. It's pretty urgent stuff. And then later... O my strength, I watch for you. You, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. And then ten verses further on. O my strength, I sing praise to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. David laid out his heart before God and then said, I'm watching to see what you're going to do, God. That's the first point. The second point is this. That watching was not a passive watching. David didn't say, I'm watching, so um, here I am in my armchair. What are you going to do, God? No, he took action to protect himself. In fact, he eventually fled from Saul's court, and we'll see what happened thereafter in coming weeks. And what's more, he sought and received the help of friends and those around him. Successively, Michal, his wife, Jonathan, and then Samuel saved his life. So he he relied on friends. You see, the key point here is this. 
God and God alone could save him, but God chose different means to do so. I've already mentioned that at one point God intervened directly by his spirit, disabling Saul. He sent his spirit to to disable him, as I said, both physically and mentally, if you look at it uh, in in, in chapter 19. Uh, On other occasions, more often, he used other people. Michal, Jonathan, Samuel. But the means are a side issue. The key point is that God was protecting David because God was with him. I hope the lesson for us in that is pretty obvious. I I very much hope you're not in David's position. I hope no one's pursuing you to kill you. Um, If they are, you better have a word afterwards. But, but, But I'm sure we're many of us are in situations from time to time in which we're under pressure, in which we do need protection from one reason or another, maybe physical, maybe mental, maybe all sorts of of things. And and we can use David's model. We we need to recognize first and foremost that in the end, it's God and God alone who is going to protect us. And then we need to turn to him, recognizing that in prayer, Seek his help. Be as passionate as David. David's merely expressing what he felt at the time before God. And then we need to seek to do sensible things in that situation. And in particular, not to shun the help of friends. To be prepared to see that God acts through the people around us, through his people He acted through Michal, Jonathan, and Samuel. He can act through us today in support uh, of one another. And then, having recognized all of that, we should watch and look to see God act in the situation as, as David expressed it. And the reason we're in the same position as David is because God is with us as he was with David. Uh, I should be careful to qualify that. God's with us if... We have repented of our rebellion against him and turned back to him, uh, showing faith and trust in Christ, his saviour. And what did Jesus say? Well, almost the last thing he said while on earth was, surely I am with you to the end of the age. He promises to be with us. And a few weeks earlier, just before the day before he died, he talked to his disciples a lot about what life would be like without him. And do you remember how he concluded? Actually, interestingly, Chris quoted this this morning. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. David experienced that and and so can we. Let's, let's just pull back. Samuel refused to, sorry, not Samuel, Saul refused to accept God's will and God's way. And he embarked upon a course that was to put him in a downward spiral of insecurity, jealousy, fear, and anger. Jonathan and his son accepted God's will, even though it doubtless wasn't what he'd have chosen for himself. And he lived a life 
of fulfillment in that will. David also accepted God's will for him. On this occasion, the will was something that was very much in David's interests. Well, up to a point, because David had to go through uh, serious fear and problems and issues uh, in following God. Three very different people, three very different situations, three very different reactions. The Bible records them because we can learn from all of them and we should seek to do that. Amen.